Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Lauren Hayden, and I'm the project coordinator at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Right now, our participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. David Shu. Go ahead, David. Thank you, Lauren. Greetings and welcome once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is David Shute, and I will be your moderator for today's call. We are delighted that you could join us today. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and the care that your patients receive. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, with the next call being September 17, 2008. The article for that call will be Sildenafil Treatment of Women with Antidepressant-Associated Sexual Dysfunction. Please plan on joining us. Several organizations have made Author in the Room a regular part of their learning experience, and we certainly encourage everyone to do so. Today, our featured author is Dr. Beverly Green, uh, first author of the uh, article entitled Effectiveness of Home Blood Pressure Monitoring, Web Communication, and Pharmacist Care on Hypertension Control, published in the uh, June 25th issue of JAMA. Dr. Beverly Green is an affiliate investigator at Group Health Center for Health Studies, where she conducts health services research focused on cardiovascular disease and cancer screening. She is also a practicing family physician and preventive care specialist at Group Health Cooperative and the primary investigator for two National Institutes of Health grants. Dr. Green has over 20 years of experience in the development and implementation of evidence-based guidelines on numerous topics, including obesity, hypertension, and cancer screening. She's an associate clinical professor at the University of Washington Department of Family Medicine and author of several papers and book chapters. Dr. Green received a 1999 award in recognition of her contribution to the clinical quality improvement at Group Health. She was a 2004 finalist for the Group Health Lifetime Achievement Award. Welcome, Dr. Green. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. We're so happy to have you here. As a moderator, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Green's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on her article. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from a recently published author about research findings that can improve patient care. Together, Dr. Green and I will help you translate this research into improvements in your practice and your patient care. Here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Green will spend 10 to 15 minutes summarizing her findings. I will then take just a couple of minutes to draw out some of the implications for real-world clinical practice settings and set the stage for us to take your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. This is a great forum in which you get clarification on anything in the article itself by hearing from the lead author and to contemplate with your peers the significance of the findings and the steps you might take in using this information towards improving care. Your participation, not just in terms of questions, but in offering up your experience in this area will be very helpful. 
There are approximately 100 phone lines connected to the call today, generally with several individuals participating per line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and the JAMA websites as streaming audio or podcasts. Complete details and instructions are available under the program section of IHI.org. Prior author in the room calls are also available on those sites. Now let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Green, who will provide an overview of his, or sorry, her recent research. Dr. Green. Thank you. Um, uh, before I start, I want to first thank uh, the other investigators on this grant, EBT, uh, short for Electronic uh, Communications and Home Blood Pressure Monitoring, and the Group Health Pharmacists and the NHLBI that supported this grant. I also want to state that I have no disclosures. Um, I'll start by saying that hypertension is the most common diagnosis that we make in primary care. Yet, only about half of those uh, with hypertension have blood pressure below target goals. This is despite all the evidence that we have that treatment of hypertension decreases cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, renal failure, and all-cause death. So it's an important problem that I see in my practice, and I wondered if we could do it better. We wanted to know whether a new model of care that leveraged home blood pressure monitoring, electronic communications, took care out of the office, bringing it into their homes, could be used to improve blood pressure control. We compared two interventions to usual care. Uh, the first was home blood pressure monitoring and training to use uh, this and an existing patient website. Um, and the second was this plus pharmacist care management delivered over the web. The primary outcomes were change in systolic and diastolic blood pressure and uh, change in percent with controlled blood pressure, uh, hypertension with controlled blood pressure. The secondary outcomes were medication adherence and intensification, BMI, physical activity, and health-related quality of life and healthcare utilization. The setting uh, for this study was group health practice, uh, which is an integrated group uh, practice in Washington State with almost 600,000 patients. The study was conducted at 10 group health-owned clinics. Uh, these clinics have an existing comprehensive electronic medical record called EPIC, which uh, has uh, patient encounters recorded in it, order entry, lab x-ray EKG results, staff and patient secure messaging. And there's a patient shared interface uh, named My Group Health, where patients can go when their ID verified to look at portions of their own electronic medical record and send email messages to their healthcare team and do medication re refills. Patients were eligible for this study uh, if they had um, in our automated databases an ICD-9 diagnosis of hypertension and were on medications for this. We excluded people from uh, based on automated databases if they had diabetes, heart disease, or other serious conditions. The reason we excluded those groups was because pharmacists were going to be providing care over the web, and for this uh, proof-of-concept trial, we wanted to keep it straightforward with straightforward algorithms. Um, we called all those people uh, that we sent letters to and that we found, and uh, we determined whether they were computer-able, uh, had access to the Internet and an email address, 
if they were and uh, willing to um, come into a screening visit, we checked their blood pressure. And um, if their blood pressure was uh, systolic 140 or greater or 90 diastolic or greater at two of screening visits, they were eligible for the study. And if they agreed, they were consented. We randomized 780, uh, 778 participants. The interventions were based on chronic care model, which was developed by Ed Wagner at our institution. The chronic care model has six domains, which includes decision support, which is uh, evidence-based guidelines, which we have quite extensive good guidelines uh, that are well supported by good evidence for hypertension. Delivery system design, how we uh, provide care within our healthcare uh, clinics and teams. Um, Self-management support, the support that the physician and the team gives patients in their own self-care, their chronic condition. Clinical information systems, how we put it together uh, and give people, the patient and the team, the information they need when they need it. And uh, healthcare organizations, uh, such as supporting electronic medical records, uh, community policies and resources, such as HEDIS, uh, that might drive some of these activities. When all these uh, domains are optimized, the hypothesis is that you will have prepared, proactive practice teams and informed, activated patients and improve outcomes. Um, the chronic care model has been uh, proven to be effective for depression, uh, diabetes, congestive heart failure, arthritis, and a number of other conditions, but as far as we know, it had not been previously used to design an intervention for hypertension. So three interventions consisted of usual care. Patients were registered to use uh, this website if they weren't already registered, and at Group Health, 65% of patients already are. Uh, they were told that their blood pressure was not in control and to work with their physician to improve control. In the uh, second group, the active intervention, uh, they received blood pressure monitors with proficiency trainings, uh, and we asked them to demonstrate that they could use it effectively on their own. They also um, they received web use training where we actually took them on a tour of the group, My Group Health website with all its functionality and assisted them if they did not already know how to uh, send secure uh, messages and refill medications and few portions of their medical record. They were also told their blood pressure was not in control and to work with their physician, but they now had new tools to assist them, uh, their blood pressure uh, monitor and uh, secure messages, and they were encouraged to send blood pressures to their primary care provider. The third group received all the same things as group one and two plus pharmacy care. Um, uh, pharmacists, the pharmacists that uh, did the interventions had some experience with care management and registry database work, and they used electronic medical record in their day-to-day -day work, apart from frontline work. Um, we, they had two training sessions uh, where we went over hypertension guidelines and step medication protocols. We reviewed um, the uh, information systems, the registry database they'd be using to identify their patients and follow them, and the uh, electronic medical record and how they would document care. They also reviewed patient-centered communication styles. Um, once the patient was randomized and in the pharmacist um, intervention group, the pharmacist sent the patient a, a welcoming message no, uh, notifying them and also notified the patient that they were, um, that they were in the study. When uh, the pharmacist sent them this message, they received a tickler to go to the website where they could sign in securely 
and review their message as well as part other parts of the website that pertain to their own electronic medical record. Um, they um, use this communication to, to schedule one planned telephone call. At the telephone call, the, the pharmacist reviewed their medications and past medication history, particularly their antihypertensive medications, their allergies and questions regarding adherence. They were also introduced to the action plan used for uh, the web communications, which included um, uh, best ways to monitor their blood pressure and the monitoring schedule, their current hypertension medications with the dose and schedule, a lifestyle choice uh, that the patients were encouraged to make at least once, such as reducing salt or increasing physical activity, and uh, any recommendations for changes to their current hypertension medication, um, and um, asking if they agreed with the plan and a follow-up plan for the following uh, follow-up communications and needed lab tests. Thereafter, there was ongoing pharmacist care management every two weeks for the three, uh, first three months or until the blood pressure was in control. The intervention lasted 12 months. The pharmacist made step medication changes per the um, uh, protocol. They actually had prescriptive authority, so they didn't have to have the physician sign the changes first if they were in the protocol. They um, had uh, ongoing iterative communication with patients over the web. Any clinical concerns or deviation for the medication pro protocol, the pharmacist transferred to the patient's own primary care physician. Here are the results at 12 months. Um, at the telephone, uh, approximately 21% of the patients that we contacted were not computer-able and thus not eligible for the study. Um, 33% of the, the patients that we talked to um, were willing uh, to come in for a screening visit. Um, at the screening visit, almost 61% had controlled blood pressure based on an average of uh, less than 140 or 90 diastolic at both of the screening visits. 2.5% um, had blood pressure that was too high uh, to be in the study, and we assisted them with getting care. Um, and um, in the final sample, 778 patients were randomized. Baseline characteristics of the randomized population, about half of them were, were uh, the sexes were equally distributed. The mean age was 59. Uh, the 83% of the participants were Caucasian, which might seem high, but for the Northwest area, that actually is better than the representative area we, we uh, recruited and enrolled uh, more minority and ethnic minorities than is typical for this area. 50% uh, of the population had some college or more education, and 56% um, were uh, employed full-time. The average number of hypertension medications uh, that patients were taking at baseline was 1.6, and half of them were only on one medication, while only 16% were on three or more. Average, um, the BMI at baseline of, of over 30 uh, was uh, two-thirds of the population and over half had a blood pressure monitor before the study. Blood pressure uh, at baseline was 152 systolic and 89 diastolic, reflecting that systolic is the number that, uh, blood pressure was the number that was most likely to qualify them for the study. Results. Um, after 12 months, the usual care, 31% uh, had controlled blood pressure. This was partially due to um, uh, regression to the mean that if, you, if their blood pressure is pretty close to 140 or 90, the next time you measure it, it is. 
under that number, and also the Hawthorne effect. They knew they were in a study and probably decided it was time to do something about their uncontrolled blood pressure. Um, in the um, blood pressure monitoring web training only group, uh, the control improved 5% uh, over the usual care, 36%, which was not significant. However, in the pharmacist group, uh, control improved by 25%, which was significant compared to both usual care and the only group uh, at a P less than 0.001. Um, blood, blood pressure changes um, in um, in the web-only group, blood pressure dropped eight points, a net change of three points compared to usual care, which was significantly um, improved um, compared to usual care. However, in the farm, pharmacy group, blood pressure dropped 14 points, net change of nine points, which was uh, significant uh, compared to both usual care and the web-only group. So what you're seeing here is a step change where the web-only group had a significant improvement compared to usual care, while the pharmacist group had a significant, a greater improvement compared to both usual care and the web-only group. Uh, diastolic blood pressure had similar changes uh, with a net change of uh, one, which wasn't significant in the only group, uh, but was, uh, the net change was three and a half, a, a seven point drop and a three and a half net change in the pharmacy group that was significant compared to usual care. Um, Prior, at the time of randomization, we stratified uh, those patients that had a systolic blood pressure of 160 or over, or over uh, thinking that they would be harder to control, and they were uh, randomized um, to uh, each of the study interventions so we could do some a priori um, uh, analyses of their blood pressure control separately. And in this group, there was even greater benefit of the pharmacist intervention with blood pressure dropping 28 points with a net change of 13 points compared to usual care. And again, very significant compared to the only group and usual care. Diastolic blood pressure dropped 10 points in this group with a net change of almost five points. Um, the likelihood of, so the, in summary, the likelihood that blood pressure was controlled after 12 months was almost two times as likely in the pharmacist group, um, whereas those with more severe hypertension, it was over three times more likely to be controlled in the pharmacist group. And while we did see improvements in blood pressure control in the uh, blood pressure monitor web-only group, they were not significant for control. They were close, though. Uh, secondary outcomes, uh, average number of uh, medications increased significantly for the, the uh, web-only group uh, from 1.6 to 1.9. They were significantly different than usual care. Again, we saw a step change where the pharmacist group had the greatest change. They were on more than two medications, and it was significant compared to usual care and the only group. Significantly more patients were on aspirin. However, uh, lifestyle changes remained the same in the uh, three intervention groups. Uh, BMI and physical activity were unchanged. Patient-initiated secure messages also increased significantly in the monitoring web training group only uh, from baseline, whereas there were greater significant changes in a stepwise progression in the pharmacist group. Um, Utilization in terms of primary care visits and hospitalizations were un, 
were uh, the same in all three groups, and there were no differences in serious adverse events. So, in conclusion, there were several limitations to our study. We recruited only computer-able population. This population tended to be younger. There were less uh, racial and ethnic minorities, and they were more likely to be working full-time than those people um, that uh, were um, not computer-able. Some of that gap will disappear as population ages, but some of that will not disappear because um, they're not related to age. This was also a, a study done in an insured population where most patients, almost all patients, have medication coverage for a small copay. Um, group Health also has resources that are not available at most health plans, including the, the comprehensive electronic medical uh, record with a shared patient uh, medical record. We also did not uh, uh, have an attention control for the middle group. We did not send them reminders through the 12 months to send in their blood pressure. We are going to determine the cost effectiveness of the study, but we do not have those results yet. Strengths of our study, this is the first large uh, randomized controlled trial that we know of that tested web-based care uh, to measure treatment outcomes. It's also the first randomized control trial we know of that applied the chronic care model to hypertension. This trial also supports active per, uh, patient participation in their care and over the web, and it further supports a team approach to chronic conditions. In summary, proactive and reactive pharmacist care management over the web, applying all six domains of the chronic care model, improved hypertension control. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Green, and thank you for that summary. Thank you for a great study, which really addresses a very prevalent chronic condition, hypertension, uh, that clearly we as a provider community are doing only a fair job in managing. Um, and, and as I think about your work and the changes that you tested, um, you know, I am again delighted to see that in the framework of the CARE model um, and to see again, the use of a different care team, and the strongly positive results um, that came from including uh, clinical pharmacists on the care team and giving them certainly a very active role in managing hypertension. And I would agree with you as well that there are um, some great lessons from this, clearly some challenges in generalizing these interventions outside of a large integrated structure um, like group health or like Kaiser to more general areas. But I think that will be a very fertile topic of our discussion going forward. I'd like now to go ahead and turn to questions from you, our callers. Uh, your questions and comments can certainly include either the implications of this research or preferably um, how we can go ahead and apply these in our practice to make improvements. Feel free to share any examples of what you have already done or what you're thinking or planning that you might want to do. Uh, we're also happy to discuss this in the context of PDSA test cycles um, and using improvement methodology. Now I'd like to turn it over uh, to our uh, operator, Leslie, to explain a little bit how to use the uh, question and answer call-in system. Leslie? Thank you. For those of you who would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchstone phone and your questions will be answered in the order that they are received. If at any time your question has been answered, you may press star 2 to remove yourself from the question lineup. 
Once again, for those of you who have a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone. Please allow one moment for our first question. Great. Thank you, Leslie. And Dr. Green, do you have any sort of brief comments on uh, the application of this outside of the group health setting that you think would be fertile areas for us to talk about? Well, I think one of the questions I've gotten a lot is, can you do this just by email, um, and how can you adapt this to systems that don't have all those tools? And, and frankly, I, I don't have the answer because we did have all those tools. But I think um, if, if, you, if you would like to try some of those tools and you have access at least in part to some of them, uh, you could do it as a PDSA cycle where you would um, look and measure and uh, see what the um, effect was from uh, doing it in a slightly different way or a different way. Um, I would encourage that. But I'm hoping we get some active questions about that and some of the questions about uh, concerns people might have had about the study and how it might apply to their organization or their care. Yeah. Well, I think we probably will. Leslie, do we have any callers in the queue at this time? Yes, sir. Our first question comes from Charlie Stesnik of Novitas Health Solutions. Please proceed with your question. Hello. Uh, this is Anthony Starosinek, and uh, this is from uh, Navitas Health Solutions. And the question I have is, uh, were pharmacists reimbursed for this service, um, and if so, what did uh, what, what was that reimbursement level? And, and part two is, do you think this m model is uh, or can be repeated in a community pharmacy setting outside of a, um, a group health model uh, where maybe access to the medical record is limited or non-existent? Boy, two great questions. Beverly, would you go ahead? Yes. Um, we, we During the pilot phase of our study, we actually used frontline pharmacists, and we found that it, it, they we're having difficulty, particularly with the phone call and doing that. So we switched over. We actually had one clinical pharmacist and, and a couple that were frontline. We switched over when we went to the intervention phase to using all um, clinical pharmacists that actually had de dedicated time for population management. And it, it took them, on average, uh, when they had a full load and they were kind of in the middle of the peak of the study, carrying about 60 patients, about one hour uh, or more a day, um, but I actually discussed this with them recently and asked them, I say, one to two hours, if they could do it more efficiently. And they said, they shook their heads. They said, yes, their learning curve, they got better. And also they felt they had some of that one to two hours was uh, in study procedures, phone calls, and uh, we had a, a very um, detailed um, averse event reporting uh, that they had to attend to, and things like abnormal labs went, went on those. So they spent a lot of time on that as well. So they thought they could get more efficient over time, and yes, we did pay for that time uh, that they spent, so they actually clocked in their hours, and we, we measured that and paid them. Okay. Thank you. So, so, Beverly, to clarify, they were paid on an hourly basis. Yes. It was presumably part of their existing FTE, yes. so there was not an incentive for them to move any sort of volume through the system. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So, the, you know, it, it, what we did was basically just pay back the pharmacy for the time that they were away from their other job, and they just got their salary as usual. So they, they didn't see any difference, but we actually did pay for the time. Right. So the difference for them may have been a, a little variety in their workday and, and some, some new ways to leverage their skills, but there was no financial yes. incentive for the pharmacist. Right. The pharmacists actually found this work quite rewarding, and they were very sad when the uh, project ended 
they felt like they, uh, through the use of the secure messaging and uh, the asynchronous messaging, they really got to know people, which was really surprising that they could have those kind of relationships with patients and um, were found it was uh, one of the best parts of their career. Well, that's great, and that's actually been my experience in my clinical practice, that when we've been able to pharma partner with pharmacists around care management, it's usually been very rewarding for the pharmacists and generally well well liked by the patients. So, uh, Leslie, let's go ahead to our next call, please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Norman Charney of 21st Century Healthcare. Please proceed with your question. Yeah, hi. I noticed that there was a significant number of people who were excluded because they didn't have capability for with uh, computers. Now, with computers getting to be so cheap and some of the basic ones being simple to operate, did anybody look at the possibility of buying these people computers and teaching them how to use it? Yeah, th this is kind of interesting. There's a two-part answer to this. Um, uh, Harold Goldberg, who was on our team, um, actually did a small pilot study um, where they developed a website and they actually gave uh, uh, disadvantaged uh, disparate people computers and, uh, for, with diabetes. And they found that people uh, with, that didn't already have computers didn't really adjust to them that well. That, that wasn't something they were really that open to. Um, then, and so they didn't find that particularly fruitful. In, in their study, and they went to a lot of trouble. They went to their homes and did a lot of things to engage them. Um, on the other hand, um, one of the things we found is sometimes in, in a family, there is one person that engages in the computer, and it may not necessarily be the patient. It might be a spouse, and they do it for the patient. And, right. and that came up a number of times. So, uh, you know, thinking of that, if there's somebody in the family identified as the technology user, uh, you know, facilitating families, which is something we didn't even think about when we did the study, might might be a solution. But right. in our early studies, we we haven't found that as promising as we'd like. Thank you. Well, great. Thank you. And that reinforces, I think, some of the things we've learned from other applications of technology, even in physician offices, that the presence of the hardware itself is really not sufficient. It's more the user's comfort and capabilities that lead to lead to the results. So, interesting parallel in the patient setting. So, Leslie, next caller, please. Our next question comes from Patricia Heiler of Michigan Department of Community Healthcare. One, please proceed with your question. Thank you. Actually, this is Velma Tyson, who's sitting in on the call from the Department of Community Health in Michigan. And uh, I had a two-part question. One was, um, were the physicians copied on emails, especially in terms of when treatment was changed or there were relevant discussions? And then the second question, uh, were the patients given free blood pressure units? Okay. Um, the physicians uh, were uh, told initially that their patient was in the study. Uh, they also received the, the first uh, action plan that was created after the um, the uh, telephone intake call. But thereafter, um, the pharmacists found that the physicians really weren't that interested, and they they didn't CC them on standard care, um, but kept it to more where they felt the physician needed to know or participate. Uh, all the lab tests that were done went to the physician. They were they were ordered in the physician's name. And if patients didn't have a baseline EKG, 
uh, we had the pharmacist order that too. So that that was kind of a learning experience um, how we'd work with the with the physicians when the pharmacists were ordering the tests. And the second question, remind me what that is. Whether the patients were all given free blood pressure? Yes, they, they were. And um, blood pressure automated validated cuffs um, uh, have come down in price, and I, I believe you can get one for roughly $50 as a validated price. Uh, that's a validated cuff. There's a lot of discussion uh, around um, who who can and who can't use an automated blood pressure monitor. One of the main advantages of the of the home blood pressure monitor over office visits, you can get multiple numbers. Um, people with hypertension, particularly that aren't controlled, tend to have very variable uh, blood pressure, and it can vary by 10 to 20 points in a day. And um, the more blood pressures you get, the more you can average, and you probably get a truer reflection of their blood pressures if you can get a multiple numbers versus uh, two blood pressures in the office. And Recently, they've found a greater correlation with the with the home numbers to um, to uh, markers such as cardiovascular disease. Even though studies basically used uh, clinic-based uh, blood pressures for their outcomes, but in terms of the individual, it seems that getting more blood pressures is a good thing. And we had some tools to assist the pharmacist on averaging all those numbers uh, when a patient brings in all those numbers to a doctor. I am a doctor in practice. You see this big card, and I kind of look, oh, that's a lot of numbers, and I don't get out my calculator. So we actually developed a tool where they could take some text and, um, and average them all and, and get some numbers, and we could look at trends. Now there are machines now that can do that. Great. Well, thank you for that question. This is David again. I just want to clarify your first answer, and that is that physicians did not routinely get copies of changes in management. So as an example, if the medication was stepped up or a new med was added, was that routinely uh, sent to physicians for review, or was it just included in the medical record? It was just included in the medical record if it was on the protocol. They, they felt comfortable if it was on the protocol and found that the doctors weren't even looking at them, so and they didn't want extra stuff in their inbox. So unless it was uh, something that needed to be acted on or a concern, um, it, it would be in the medical record, so the next time they saw the patient, they would see it, but they wouldn't necessarily see it in the interim. And the physician acceptance of that was good? We had no complaints. Wonderful. Okay, well, that, I think, demonstrates a high level of trust between the clinical pharmacists in this program and the physicians, so that's great. Leslie, uh, let's go to our next question, please. Our next question comes from Tracy Nakamura of Hill Positions. Please proceed with your question. Hi. Uh, we're wondering if it would be feasible to do an intervention like this with just telephone-based and without a computer, and if so, how would you change the intervention? What would the challenges be? Well, I think it has been done by telephone, um, and I can't tell you off the head, off my head, what you know the, the comparison of the effect size. Our effect size was was very good. Um, I think the advantages of the web um, are that it's asynchronous. We had somebody that was sending their blood pressures from the Siberian Sea, and we and they can have their prescriptions mailed to them. We actually encourage them to do that because um, it's more cost-effective than going to the individual pharmacies. So um, the web was uh, was nice because the asynchronous communication and, and people didn't have to chase each other. But on the other hand, telephone is a bit more personal, but it does sometimes require multiple telephone calls and, and likely to be more expensive. 
than web-based. But I, I, sure, you could do it. It's just going to be a, a question of cost and, and how, how sticky is it in getting the patients to keep up with their schedules and communicate with you. Uh, this is David Tracy. I think that's a great question because the majority of us don't yet have the kind of integrated information system that group health is fortunate enough to have. And I guess I would be curious if anybody on the call has tried this or been involved in any sort of intervention for this kind of management using either telephone instead of web-based interventions or other healthcare professionals instead of pharmacists and if they've had good results. So are you aware of any others, Bev, uh, who have used health professionals other than pharmacists with a good outcome? Oh, well, they're, they're, uh, Walsh um, did a nice meta-analysis, and they're categorized, and there's several uh, if you look at that article. And, and the particular names aren't coming to mind, you know, because some have used facilitated information and then called the patients where they sent some of the numbers electronically, so there's been multiple combinations. But in general, pharmacist interventions, adding a, a team member uh, to um, assist with blood pressure care has had large effect sizes compared to some other um, interventions and it is recommended um, by those people who have done those types of um, uh, reviews. Great. Well, thank you, and thank you, Tracy, for your question. Leslie, next caller, please. Our next question comes from Deborah Spicer of New York Department of Health. Please proceed with your question. This is uh, Jonathan Curtin from the New York State Department of Health, and I was wondering um, what type of monitor was used in the study. Did all the patients have um, automatic um, self-inflating monitors, or was there a variety used? Um, we used the Omron uh, automated machine uh, that you just push a button. It also had a printer, which is encouraged, but uh, that costs a bit more money, and I'm not sure. I mean, we, we don't know to what degree they actually use the printer because it also has a memory function, so all they have to do is, is push the button, and they can go backwards in time and get their blood pressures as long as they don't share it with another person, which is still a problem with the printer. Um, so um, it was a, a commonly available, valid and trusted machine that we gave them. If they had machines at home that from prior, we, we asked them not to use those. Great. Uh, thank you, Jonathan, for your question. Here, Leslie, next caller, please. Our next question comes from Jane Bean of Greta. Please proceed with your question. Um, my question has to do with, um, it said in the article, all planned communications with the pharmacist happens about every two weeks until the blood pressure was controlled and then less often thereafter. Was there a minimal frequency for those uh, calls that took place after the blood pressure was controlled? The second part is, is there any type of follow-up being done to look and see um, how these patients are doing now that there's no longer any pharmacy intervention, any type of follow-up study to this? Um, the, the first question, uh, the communications in the first six months was there was, um, after blood pressure was controlled was a minimum of monthly and in the second uh, six months a minimum of three months that was negotiated between the patient and the pharmacist. Um, so we just put kind of limitations on at least, you know, contacting them once in a while, uh, but wanted to leave it up to them. And actually some of the patients wanted to communicate more often because they, they felt that the pharmacist was actually functioning like a coach 
you know, to keep them on the ball. So that did happen, and so one has to think about that once you open up the valve and, and allow that. And your second question was? Well, just wondering if you've done any follow-up at all with any of these folks to look at how well their blood pressure has, uh, I guess, the control has been maintained since uh, the interventions have stopped. We're planning to do it. The study ended in December of 2007, so we haven't done yet, um, but we're planning to do it. Thank you. Well, that'll be very interesting. We'd love to see a prolonged effect um, long after the intervention, uh, which would be great. would argue strongly for cost-effectiveness. So, Leslie, uh, next caller, please. Our next question comes from Judy Patel of Allegiance Health. Please, please proceed with your question. Hi. Our question is, um, you had mentioned um, during the study there were, or that there's been a study on some who can't use an automated cuff. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because we're not aware of certain criteria to eliminate someone from using the automated cuff. Um, yeah, I'll try to help you on that. Um, I'm not a leading ex expert uh, like um, Thomas Pickering, but um, I, I do have some knowledge about that. Um, uh, in general, people, uh, there's a few categories where we know that people are going to have trouble with the automated cuffs, and that's people with arrhythmias, particularly if they're rapid, um, because of the uh, sensor that's used, it, it can't detect. Um, also, people that have um, very large arms, that's a cuff fit problem, and in general, that's a cuff fit problem in clinic as well, although it, it, you get an error message and it just won't record. And uh, so the, the, in our study, the patients had to have arms that we could actually fit. So if their arms were too large, they were excluded, and we had a few percent like that. Um, and um, there are wrist monitors that can be used for patients um, that can't fit the upper cuff, but there's not general agreement that that's okay yet. But the newer models, some of the newer models actually have been validated, and they have sensors because it's the arm position that seems to be the most important. Uh, and so they have sensors that go off if um, the arm is in the wrong place. And, and then there's a certain populations like um, people with very stiff arteries or renal failure where the, the cuffs just haven't been validated yet or for uh, preeclampsia in children. Um, and then there's just some people that get error messages. They just, for, we don't even know why. Okay, so, thanks. But it's very few. Okay, thanks. So that's about the whole range I can think of. Great, and thank you for your question, Judy. Leslie, next caller, please. Our next question comes from Julie Grady of Source. Please proceed with your question. Uh, yes, I was just wondering, I didn't get a chance to thoroughly review your article, um, but do you have a comparison of the number of contacts from among the groups between the patient and the provider they were contacting? Yes, I, I have some of that. It's based on messages. And it was called message thread. So it's a little complicated. Um, and I'm trying to see where I have it. I don't actually have a table in front of me because it wasn't listed in the paper. But uh, there were a, a large number of message threads generated by the pharmacist, I think, on average of 27 per patient, 26 or 7. So there was quite a bit of communication going on. The numbers that I talked about in the discussion were the ones that were just generated by the patients themselves. They weren't started by the physicians, which 
increased from a baseline of about one and a half to over four, four and a half. So, and then there was some movement in that only group too. Uh, so something was going on with that group too. They they did start to engage more than they had prior uh, once they were given a little training. So, are there any assumptions you would make based on the number of communications between patient and provider from among the groups and their success rates? No, we don't have that kind of data yet, but we we are looking at some aspects of the of computer skills and um, treatment effect. Okay, thank you. Great, thank you for your question. And Leslie, next questioner, please. Our next question comes from Jim Acklin of Healthcare Reform. Please proceed with your question. Yes, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to respond to the uh, the. the <clears throat> idea on uh, the integrated communications and remote monitoring. Uh, uh, in the American Telemedicine Association, particularly among the vendors in that organization, uh, there have been for many years very successful experiments and, and system developments uh, for uh, patient status uh, <clears throat> in remote monitoring, uh, patient compliance, and also patient education. And uh, they have a lot of data and a lot of experience, and they've developed a lot of uh, uh, different devices that are, in some cases, uh, like video phones and so on that people can use, and they integrate uh, local sensors uh, not only uh, for blood pressure but also for uh, uh, weight and other vital statistics. Um, Medical Records Institute, uh, in their early days of the, of the electronic medical records development, also did a lot of uh, remote monitoring and patient education uh, management, again, with uh, extraordinarily successful uh, results. So uh, I, I would suggest that uh, anybody interested in that would uh, be, uh, benefit from those two organizations, the American Telemedicine Association and the Medical Records Institute, uh, as uh, sources of uh, of additional information. Yeah, and, and I, I think that's actually, this is Dr. Green again, uh, that, that's an excellent point because I, I, even though just the technology as is, uh, we sa I said we haven't found particularly effective, but there are ways um, that are really not out there yet to really make it a whole lot easier, and, and there's a lot of interest in and uh, preliminary studies that show that that can be very effective. So, but, yes. but, of course, those things are, are a bit more costly than just giving a cheap computer. Absolutely. And when, when designing a study like this, it's, uh, it's uh, helpful sometimes to uh, consider the, uh, the demographics to be evaluated if, if it's at all possible because they ran a, a, a study in New York, for example, where the nurses carried laptops to go out to the uh, various sites in order to collect patient data. And uh, one of the biggest problems that they had was that the uh, the telephones systems were not compatible with with uh, today's uh, electronic standards. I mean, we you know the, all the ISO XXX uh, standards that all of our communications devices uh, just sort of come with today. Uh, in the old buildings, they're not uh, <laughs> they don't exist that way. It's also true in some of the remote locations when you go out to. Indian reservations and so on, um, there uh, where communication uh, problems are, are very real, and yeah. uh, these kinds of projects become very difficult to, to perform. And actually, I wish we had James Ralston on the call, our IT specialist, because there, there's a lot of work and there's a lot of hope 
as uh, cell phone technologies um, that actually this is the kind of care that we will be able to use in areas where there is less access to other resources. Exactly right. Once the technology is caught up, because uh, the growth in this area is just uh, tremendous. Yes, right. And, and, and one thing I, I should add about the, the web is that patients want this. They want these services. So whether a healthcare organization has it or not, there's great satisfaction from the patients when when they get these. Not, and not and once they have them, they don't want to go back. Not only they want them, but the, but the clinicians want them as well. Uh, I mean, when we look at uh, patient compliance issues, uh, the ability to have remote monitoring capability with feedback uh, to the clinician is uh, unbelievable. Indeed. Well, Jim, thanks for your call and thanks for your comments. Um, a specific question for Dr. Green. Have you at Group Health done anything using text messaging as a modality for communicating with patients? That answer is simple, no. But I think it's a really interesting area. And uh, Skype and Facebook are interesting <laughs> areas, too. There's a lot of work to This is just the tip. Yeah, the and, and there's certainly some opportunities sort of uh, – segmented along generations as we go there. So, anyway, Jim, thanks again for your comment. Uh, Leslie, do we have another caller on the line? Yes, sir. Our next question comes from Janet Laker of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Please proceed with your question. Hello, this is Janet Laker, and I have a couple questions. Uh, first of all, I was kind of surprised at the comment about physicians not really wanting to deal with any of the changes in the medications and notifications of, of that kind of thing. And so I think that if you're in private practice, a lot of the physicians I work with would feel differently, and maybe it depends on the type of setting you're in and, and uh, how it's set up. But uh, the other comment I wanted to make was or ask a question was, uh, were the pharmacists uh, able or making changes on their drugs to generic drugs? Um, I, I think your first part um and it might be different in private practice, but as a practicing family doctor, once you get the EMR, as time goes, it just feels like things are getting more and more filled up. And um, it seems like for chronic conditions that there's an iterative process that has to happen in between visits that doesn't currently happen, which is where things fall flat. The patient may not have understood what you thought they understood, or they may take their first two pills and hate them and and not call you because it's not easy, um, and two months later, maybe they're supposed to come back, and maybe they're disillusioned. So I, I think that this iterative care uh, is just difficult, and, and um, I, I'm not sure it's best suited for physicians who are actually touching patients. Um, and then as a physician, my list keeps on getting longer uh, each year of the things I'm supposed to think about, apart from just listening to the patient and figuring out what they really need for the appointment. So um, I, I think it would depend. It would depend uh, on the practice, but from what I hear from private family physicians, they're too busy, too. Janet? The way to redistribute it would be good. I'm sorry, Dr. Green, this is David Shute. I, I would jump in again with a comment um, or an observation that is consistent with, I think, Janet's. In the work that we do, often helping with quality improvement in smaller private practice settings, there is a very, very strong sense both for autonomy at the level of the physician and I think a sense of duty of needing to know everything that's going on with the patient. Um, and so I think there probably is a cultural difference between group health 
which I think is quite a ways down the road of being comfortable with team-based care and a differentiation of roles. And many of the smaller private practices where there still is that, rightly or wrongly, that sense that the physician needs to at least be aware of everything that's going on. So that would be my, my comment to Janet's question. Yeah, and, and I think actually one of the things, too, is I think physicians could do this, too. I, I have no doubt if, if I was given an hour to two a day and secure messaging my patients that I would be able to improve their blood pressure control. And, and that might be an interesting comparison, but I, I think in terms of cost, one would have to ask questions. Right. I think that's a great observation. Uh, let's go on, if we could, quickly to Janet's second question about uh, pharmacists switching patients over to generic drugs. Hello? Oh. Oh, Hello, Mr. Chu. Okay, our next question is from Kim So of Kaiser Permanente. Please proceed with your question. Oh, I think uh, before you Hi. do that, I missed a little bit. Do you want to go back there or keep moving? Yeah, no, actually, I'm, I'm going to back us up. We really don't have time for another question. There was a follow-up question about pharmacists uh, switching patients to generic drugs, and then I think we're going to be out of time. So go ahead, Dr. Y Green. Yes, uh, they were encouraged to do that, um, which we do just generally in, in routine care if there's um, – not a good reason for them to be in a non-generic. Uh, that's rather routine. So, but we didn't push it. This was patient-centered care, so we did what you normally do: is try to negotiate. Great. Well, thank you for your question, Janet. Um, that's all the time we have for questions, unfortunately. This has been a great discussion of these issues. Um, and I want to give Dr. Green the last word. Do you have one closing comment or thought you'd like to leave us with? Well, I, I think here I hear a lot of adaptation uh, questions. And um, I think that perhaps many healthcare systems don't have these resources yet, and particularly and, and circumstances may be different in private practices, but I think these things are coming. And so um, I think what we studied is really going to be fairly typical type of care of at least the shared medical records and finding new ways to be more efficient in the future as we get more used to this web-based uh, world. Thank you. Wonderful. And I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Green, for your wonderful participation on this call, for your excellent research and the enlightening discussion. Uh, in closing, I'd like to remind all of you that Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will take place on September 17, 2008. Uh, and our featured, featured guest author will be Dr. George Nuremberg. Uh, he will be discussing, discussing the article, Sildenafil Treatment of Women with Antidepressant Associated Sexual Dysfunction sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that will improve clinical care. Thanks again to all of you for participating in Author in the Room, and have a good day. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you all for attending. You may now disconnect.